setting fire to the stoner stereotype, sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana, the Parents' Guide to Marijuana, and over a hundred other scholarly works on the plant. I also pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times magazine. Today we're peering into the wild world of neuropsychology with Dr. Raina Hurst of Palo Alto University. Uh, Dr. Hurst started her neuropsych career down at Penn State in uh, one of the craziest studies I've ever heard, and I'll let her discuss that. She finished her PhD right here at SUNY Albany with me, went on to do a wild internship at the University of Michigan and that Ann Arbor BA there, and then did some postdoctoral training at none other than Dartmouth Hospital. So welcome to the show, Dr. Hurst. Thank you for having me. So I got to get down to what really is neuropsych in the first place. That's a great question, and not many people are familiar with uh, the term neuropsychology. Neuropsychology as a field looks at individuals' thinking skills, or what we would call their cognitive functioning. We look at things like attention, visuospatial skills, learning and memory, and more complex skills that we call executive functions, like problem-solving, organization, or judgment. Neuropsych is used in a variety of settings. Clinically, we would use it to diagnose disorders like dementia or traumatic brain injury. And in research, we use it to understand how medical diagnoses or psychiatric disorders, or in this case, substance use, might affect cognitive functioning. Well, so my stereotype from sort of intro psych is those card sorting type of tasks where folks are given cards and they have to sort of put them in different piles. Is that a typical way to describe a neuropsych test? That's right. You're describing an executive function test that is pretty popular. Um, so it's kind of like being back in school where we ask questions, we read stories and have you repeat them back, solve different types of problems, kind of like that. Well, and what's wild is this has been part of the marijuana research literature, at least since the late 1960s. I'm curious, sort of what kind of things would go awry uh, for folks who use drugs or drink a lot of alcohol? What would we be looking for in neuropsych tests? So it does vary quite a bit depending, obviously, on what the drug is that the person is using and especially how often it is used. Obviously, if you're under the influence of a drug, it alters your thinking. That's kind of why people take them. So attention and memory problems are the most common that we see. Alcohol specifically is one of the most influential drugs on the brain. When you're intoxicated with alcohol, it affects all different cognitive abilities, your attention, your language, your visual abilities, learning and memory and judgment, all different types of things. So in neuropsych, we look at the long-term effect of prolonged drug use. So not just if you're under the uh, influence of alcohol currently, but if I drink alcohol daily for 10 years, how much am I gonna permanently damage my brain? And again, we see that varies quite a bit across drugs, but um, the most common long-term deficits are in attention, memory, and executive function, with more prominent declines associated with more frequent use. 
I got you. What, what I'd like to do is just, can you give us a feel for a stereotypical memory test? What would that look like? The most widely used test would be, I'm going to read you a list of words. I want you to listen carefully. When I'm finished, you can repeat it back to me. There's different variabilities on this where um, you might repeat the word list over and over and over again to really make sure that the participant um, is learning the word list. And then after a 20 or 30 minute delay, you would ask them, okay, now how many words do you remember from that word list? All right, and then when we talk about just sort of acute effects of cannabis, uh, is there something we would expect right after someone has finished using the plant that would show up on some of these tests? The results are pretty consistent across individuals where we see changes in uh, ability to estimate time and memory and those executive functions, those more complex skills I was referring to earlier. Um, some cannabis users also report feeling apathy or a lack of motivation to complete tasks, but others actually report that cannabis makes them feel more capable, um, such as reducing anxiety. And there's been no research studies that show in a compelling way that um, cannabis users do experience this lack of motivation. In fact, they tend to perform quite well on tasks in the research lab. That's intriguing. And could you just give us a feel for these time estimation, uh, how, that, how that would work? Uh, sure. It's you know exactly what it sounds like, where you would say, okay, the time is now 10 o'clock, and I want you to stop me when you think it's 10.06 and they don't have a clock in the room and they can't look at their watch. Um, and so they literally have to estimate how long they think it takes six minutes to go by. And after using cannabis, people are very good at this. Yes, That's great. That's very great. intriguing. Well, so what about when folks really aren't uh, currently, you know, recently used, but have used for a long time? What are these kind of chronic effects that folks have hypothesized? So that's a really great question that is still under a lot of debate. And so you see a lot of variability in the research methodology of these studies that are done. They're picking different types of participants. There might be variability in how long they've been using cannabis. There's certainly variability in what other drugs they're using, such as alcohol. So in order to understand those overall deficits of chronic cannabis use, um, researchers use meta-analyses, which means they take the data from all the research studies out there examining the cognitive effects of chronic cannabis use, they combine it into one big pool of data, and they determine what those significant effects were across all the different studies. There was a really compelling meta-analysis published by Schreiner and Dunn in 2012 that examined 33 studies. Overall, they saw a small negative effect of cannabis on overall cognition, with the most prominent negative effects on attention, motor skills, learning, and memory. But most of those 33 studies actually included participants who had been abstinent from cannabis for only about 24 hours. And we know that based on the metabolism of THC, excretion from the body takes as much as three or four weeks, particularly for chronic or daily users. So therefore, it's likely that those studies were actually capturing the residual effects of intoxication rather than the long-term irreversible damage done by prolonged use. And when Schreiner and Dunn analyzed only the studies that required a one-month abstinence period, they actually found no significant cognitive effects of cannabis use at all. 
You know, it's it's so wild how these chronic effects get confused for uh, acute intoxication effects. Harrison Pope had to run this inside the hospital at Harvard, and somebody still tried to sneak a joint in the in the hospital room <laughs> the day before the, the neuropsych testing. So I just want to encourage anybody out there who uh, happens to be a user and does end up in one of these studies, by all means, take it super seriously. But in fact, uh, once there's been a little time for washout, it sounds like these effects are really small. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to put it into comparison, we're not talking about the types of memory problems that you would see in a patient with dementia or anything like that. Um, even when you're including users with those residual effects of cannabis in their system, the effect sizes are considered small. For example, if I read you a list of 16 words and asked you to remember them, you might remember 11 words instead of 12 if you habitually use cannabis. Also unclear how much these deficits would actually affect you in your daily life. There's been no strong research that these small effects would negatively impact your daily functioning in a significant way. I got to admit, it helps if the word is brownie. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that would be remembered a lot more likely, yes. <laughs> now, what I love about your work is always there's this kind of social psychology of neuropsych testing. The, the, the interaction between the the tester and the testee has uh, its own set of components. So I'd, I'd be curious, uh, does that generate some cool alternative explanations for some of these findings? Yes, absolutely. And this is, um, in general, across the field of neuropsychology, the, the influence of the social interaction between the examiner and the examinee um, is not one that's really been studied at all to date. And we would benefit from a lot more research on this. Um, my idea had initially started from looking at cannabis literature and seeing that none of the studies included what we neuropsychologists call effort or validity tests. In other words, making sure that participants are giving adequate effort so that the results are considered valid. Effort tests specifically measure whether participants are trying their hardest to do well. So you can imagine if you had to sit down and take a few hours worth of tests, it might be hard to keep your effort at 100% the whole time. This is why um, national neuropsychological organizations have guidelines stating that effort needs to be measured during an evaluation before we assume that the test results are valid. So it was really surprising to me that in a population that's commonly stereotyped as having motivational deficits, no researchers had ensured that their data were valid by including effort tests. That's yeah. pretty amazing. And, and I do want to get back to this. We, we do have to uh, pause just for a moment to uh, get a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back to discuss more on effort and neuropsych testing of cannabis users with Dr. Raina Hurst of Palo Alto University. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is him pink, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint Business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. <sighs> cash? Sorry. I don't carry around cash. And I don't want to use the ATM and pay surcharges. You don't need to carry cash. Haven't you heard about PayQuick? 
Okay. Tell me about PayQuick. It's the safe and easy way to pay. It works just like your debit card to securely pay for your purchase and gives you rewards points every time you use it. Nice. PayQuick, the safe and easy way to pay. P-A-Y-Q-W-I-C-K dot com. It's time to hem present with Anadina Stanger. I say to you with all the fervor of my soul that God intended men to be free. Rebellion against tyranny is a righteous cause. And I believe that with every ounce of my soul, we are fighting a righteous cause because people need nature. Marijuana! Hemp presents only on Cannabis Radio. Sweet sativa. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back, Burning Issues listeners. We're in the thick of a pretty wild uh, potential explanation for why there might be small but uh, significant neuropsych test deficits in cannabis users, uh, almost independently of their cannabis use. We're talking with Dr. Raina Hurst of Palo Alto University. She's the director of the neuropsych program there and a graduate of my own lab right here at SUNY Albany. So you're mentioning that uh, the previous work hasn't really looked at measures of effort in neuropsychology tests. Um, Specifically within cannabis users, that's right. I've actually to date not been able to find a single research study that has even used effort tests to make sure that their data are valid besides my own. Um, And another kind of confound that you can imagine that many researchers are using cannabis, um, using participants who are currently completing inpatient rehab treatment. That's their treatment sample. And so you can imagine that in the midst of leaving your work, your family, your friends, to go to rehab for drug dependence, putting forth good effort on hours of research testing is probably not your first priority. Can you give us a feel for what one of these effort-type tests is like? To be honest, uh, we have pretty firm test security on what they would look like because Ah. we don't want people to know ahead of time. what, which ones are only measuring efforts? Um, so that's part of the field of neuropsychology is kind of keeping a tight lid on what this would look like in practice. Um, but suffice it to say that it's specifically designed to be able to tell whether you're actually engaged in the testing process and really trying. That's super cool that there are some secrets we can't even get out here on <laughs> So you mentioned some of this effort stuff. I'm, I'm uh, also eager to kind of get a feel for the the blind condition, if you will. Can a neuropsychologist even be blind to cannabis status? Absolutely. So that was one of the other kind of gaps in the research methodology that I had looked at was, um, first of all, not looking at cognitive deficits in cannabis users keeps their examiners blind to participant user status. Now, there's been research since the 60s um, by Rosenthal suggesting that if you expect participants to give you a certain response or behavior, they are more likely to actually give that behavior. And that can, in fact, confirm your research hypotheses. Um, It serves as a confound against pure and valid research. Not all studies used blind examiners, but then even in those that that did, their cannabis-using sample were people who, again, you know, were patients in an inpatient rehab setting. And I suspected that you might be able to tell just by looking at the participant who is a cannabis user and who is not. Obviously, there might be more obvious visual cues like 
um, wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt or having their hair in dreads. But even on a simpler level, um, they might be able to tell the uh, type of person who is a cannabis user versus the type of people who tend to volunteer as healthy controls, which tend to be really high educated, uh, interested, enthusiastic individuals. So um, the other facet that I had included in my study was just asking the examiners to uh, privately note, do they think the person is a user or a non-user before they began the testing? Folks who read High Times back in the 90s and earlier know this as JDAR. This was kind of a, a borrowing from the gaydar expression, but basically you could tell somebody who had smoked a J almost simply by, by looking. How did you address this question? So we have uh, multiple studies now supporting the evidence for a JDAR, um, not only in this particular study where it was examiners who were engaged in a face-to-face -face interaction with the participant, you know, they got to hear them speak and watch them walk and see what they were dressed in, but we've also seen evidence of this even just in looking at a photograph. So we took photographs of cannabis users and cannabis non-users just from the head and shoulders up um, against a white background and we had a bunch of different samples rate whether they thought the participant was a user or a non-user. And we found evidence for this both in undergraduates as well as in neuropsychologists, the very professionals who are giving these research studies to participants. And are there just subtle cues? Are there ways that the test is administered that could somehow make the score actually change? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves in the field of neuropsychology um, on is the standardization. We try to give the test in the exact same way to participants all the time. Um, but that is really just not realistic when you have any human-to-human -human interaction. There's always going to be subtle, um, even unconscious influences. You might pause a little bit more between each word when you're reading the word list, or you might not give the participant as much time to respond when they're recalling those words. Um, so this has been, this, these expectancy effects have been demonstrated in some other literature, and my aim is to demonstrate them in the cannabis literature as well. Well, so you mentioned that uh, one of the issues seems to be this effort put forward. How, how did uh, those data turn out? So um, as I had mentioned before, I, I first wanted to look at effort tests throughout the measure. So are cannabis users even able to give good effort? But then I started to think, well, what if we could get them super motivated to do well on the testing? Very little research has examined whether effort can be enhanced in a population. In fact, effort tests are scored as pass or fail. Either you gave adequate effort or you gave poor effort. But that's not consistent with what we know about motivation or effort in our daily life. When you're giving a project uh, 80 or 90% of your best, it's not as strong as when you're giving it your 100% best effort. So I thought about what might be motivating to a cannabis user. And that's pretty easy. Most cannabis users feel pretty strongly that marijuana should be legalized. Dun, dun, or, dun. <laughs> or at least move down to a Schedule 2 or a Schedule 3 less controlled drug. So for half of the cannabis users in my study, I gave them a statement prior to testing that was designed specifically to enhance their motivation so they would try their best. So I said, it's very important that you do your absolute best on these tests because this research is going to contribute to important legislation on marijuana policy. <laughs> Lo and behold, the users who heard that statement did significantly better on the verbal learning and memory test that was given immediately afterward. 
to go back to that number of words, um, they recalled about two and a half words more than cannabis users who did not hear that statement. So this positive effect was about twice as large as the small negative effect of cannabis we talked about earlier. In fact, they did better than the non-users. I just want to hammer this home that a motivated cannabis user on a memory test can actually outscore a non-user. Absolutely. I was as shocked as you. (laughs) It was a great result. And then sort of where did you take this line of work from there? So I'm actually uh, replicating the study now with a different sample of cannabis users. um, And our preliminary analyses show consistent results. Users who were given that motivational statement did better on both the effort test and the learning and memory test given immediately afterward. And we plan to publish these results in the near future. Well, so what would you recommend to any of our listeners who might happen to be cannabis users and might find themselves taking a neuropsych test? I would suggest, as you mentioned before, just making sure to give themselves the best chance of doing as well as they possibly can. Take it seriously and give good effort. Um, This means putting yourself in the mindset of being able to work hard. Neuropsych testing is kind of like being back in school, taking tests. You want to get a good night's sleep the night before, be sure to eat breakfast, tell your examiner if you don't feel well or if you have a headache. Um, If you're able, take a break from cannabis for a few weeks or maybe at least a few days before the testing, that'll give us the most accurate picture of what your thinking skills are like without those residual effects of cannabis. And then I do want to ask yet again, is there some practical implication for this? Are these effects really big enough to even notice, say, on the job or anywhere else? I haven't seen any research suggesting that link between the neuropsych testing and an actual daily functioning. Um, Again, these are statistically significant differences that I would not call clinically significant, um, that we are just not seeing, especially, again, once you get someone to um, abstain for about a month, it seems like they tend to bounce back pretty well back to normal. Well, I know that there's folks out there who tend to take January off to clear their heads, and it sounds like it's a really good habit. Hey, thanks, <laughs> Burning Issues listeners, and a special thank you to Dr. Raina Hurst, Director of the Neuropsychology Program at Palo Alto University. Thank you for having me. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Dr. Dabber, hurry, it's temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's orders. Less heat, The cannabis industry is growing. Business is booming. And as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Today, it takes more than just being a good grower. Do you have the resources to market and handle this ever-changing business landscape? 
Let Canna Management Corporation help you grow your Canna business with our vast resources and experience to make your business a fully functional service company. Financial management, HR, sales, marketing, efficiency, and more. CMC has the experience and the expertise to improve your business and help you better meet the demands of your clients and customers. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com. Play as Ted Growing, expelled botany sophomore and the biggest grower in town, only on Weed Firm Replanted. Available on the App Store and Google Play. It's a lot of work being the biggest grower in town. Maintaining a room full of plants while dealing with a slew of eccentric customers, from a hardcore partier to the curious neighbor next door. Is anybody home? Help me expand my bud business by unlocking new strains, customizing my grow room, and completing challenges that you can't get enough of. Grow your empire so big you can see it from space. Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. My guests say Razzie Berry. We're talking about nature, naturopathic medicine, as well as the concept of prevention and preventing disease. Empower people to live a naturopathic lifestyle. Get to know your body, understand its rhythms, remove toxins, and use natural alternatives whenever possible. 90 to 95% of cancers are due to environment and lifestyle risk factors. That's a huge number. That means that cancer is preventable. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com Every strain, every sale, every medical study. Keep it right here on the Cannabis Radio Network. Welcome to Empire, presented by C.W. Hemp a weekly installment dedicated to exploring the non-psychoactive side of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of the American economy, hemp has been used in over 25,000 products, including paper, textiles, construction materials, health food, and fuel. Now, tune in and discover all there is to know about this wonder crop making a historic comeback. Empire, presented by C.W. Hemp, starts now. Hey, Cannabis Radio listeners, we're back with Hempire, the new section of our show where we explore all things hemp. As you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana. I also pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for Good Old High Times magazine. Today's guest is legendary fly fisherman and chief executive officer of CW Hemp, the incomparable Joel Stanley. Joel and the other Jay brothers created the legendary Charlotte's Web hemp products. Cannabis radio listeners know that the first signs of industrial hemp appeared as decorations for clay pots from back in 8000 BC. The mythical emperor Shen Nang supposedly brought medical uses of hemp to humanity in 2737 BC, but a special thanks to my friend Dr. Anthony de Blasi of East Asian Studies here at the University of Albany. Dr. de Blasi explained that there really was no China in 2737 B.C., and Shenang is kind of a myth, sort of like our own Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed. Fast forward a few millennia, and hemp became a cornerstone of the American economy. 
George Washington recorded growing it, and Thomas Jefferson's diary even complained a bit because the plant was a little hard on the slaves. Fast forward again just a couple of centuries to find over 25,000 products, including paper, textiles, construction materials, health food, and fuel. Joel, Jesse, Jared, John, and Jordan Stanley fashioned the medical wonder Charlotte's Web. Named for the patient Charlotte Figgy, this hemp product battles the innumerable seizures Charlotte used to experience from a rare and intractable form of epilepsy. Charlotte's parents had tried literally dozens of other medications to no avail, and each combination created odd and disturbing side effects. But within a single week of using the Stanley Brothers cannabinoid-rich hemp oil, Charlotte's seizures dropped to literally zero. After several years of using the product, Charlotte continues to experience a 99.9% reduction in seizures. The story of Charlotte's Web gained international recognition in 2013 after good old Sanjay Gupta had him in the documentary Weed. After that documentary aired, families across the U.S. moved to Colorado seeking access to Charlotte Webb products. Stay tuned to hear the rest of the story. Joel Stanley, welcome to Empire. Thank you for having me, Dr. Mitch. So you used to be a fluids engineer, and you had another business, and I just would love to get the story for how you and your brothers ended up on this track. Well, that's true. In 2008, I was a fluids engineer in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, working in the oil field. And my older brother had started one of the first dispensaries in Denver, Colorado. This was right around the time that the Obama administration had put out a memorandum basically saying that the Department of Justice was going to at least leave patients alone in states where medical marijuana was legal. And so lots of people were were looking to the industry at that moment in time. And we started looking at it as well. Believe it or not, at that time, around 2008, I was not a believer in medical marijuana. Some of my brothers were, but I flew out because I had to see my brother's dispensary. You know, this is one of those things you have to see. And, And back then, this was also new that I had to see it. And I flew out and... Walking through the doors, the first three people that I met were all cancer patients. All of them had fairly similar stories, different types of cancer, two of them balding, typical chemotherapy. And I got to hear their stories one by one as to how this plant was actually helping them. And that was the first time that I was actually sold on it. This really warms my heart because I think it's easy for people to think, oh, you guys were all a bunch of hippies, but it's not really the way the Stanley brothers grew up, is it? No, no. In fact, we grew up in a very conservative Christian community until college. I didn't go anywhere but a private Christian school. So that's where I graduated from high school. Yeah, a little less less um, stereotypical for the industry, I guess. Exactly. So you meet these cancer patients, and that had to be really moving. And what was the next step? Well, the next step for me is I went back to Texas. You know, I was I was employed down there, and I began reading. You know, it disturbed me to see how much this plant could help and that it was still prohibited. I believe these folks, but I started diving into some of the research that's been out there. Now, lots of people like to act like we don't have any research. And while maybe we don't have enough research because of prohibition, 
there were still some 18, 19,000 peer-reviewed published papers on the topic at the time. So I just began pouring through those, and it blew my mind at what these different cannabinoids found only in cannabis could potentially do for us health-wise. It's phenomenal when you see the antioxidant effects and some of the cellular stuff, but the big picture things just with nausea for cancer-related chemotherapy, improving appetite for AIDS-related wasting, it really sounds like there was plenty of opportunity to do some good. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I ended up calling my brothers, my little brothers, and saying, hey, I'd like to come back to Colorado. I'd like to come back home, and I would like to get into this industry. I think that we have some legal momentum, but I also think that we have the opportunity to actually do something that we would all enjoy. And they all jumped in. So we kind of pooled our resources, not much at the time, built our first grows there at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, and back then worked under a caregiver model. The state itself didn't have much regulation back then, and we focused predominantly on cancer. And that's really how we got into it. That's an intriguing story, and man, I, I'm really blown away. Then suddenly something happened so that you guys ended up with Charlotte's Web. What was sort of behind that? Well, back when I was reading, as I, as I mentioned, before I ever grew a plant or even really saw a cannabis plant in cycle, one of the things that was glaring from the research was this compound cannabidiol, CBD. And so really from the very beginning, we were interested in finding this compound. And back then, there was very little laboratory testing available to us, but there was some. They could at least identify whether or not these compounds were present. And so we began collecting varieties and even searching for varieties in specifically feral hemp, wild hemp of Colorado and Kansas. We began seeking these out. When you hear of a plot of wild hemp, you immediately think, what might be there that has been bred out? through the black market, because the black market bred up THC for that desired effect of getting high. Well, a lot of these other cannabinoids were just kind of forgotten about or unknown. So we began seeking CBD really in the beginning. But about 2012 is when we really had some varieties that would truly qualify as hemp. They were very low in THC and very high in CBD. We weren't thinking about CBD specifically for epilepsy. I have to give all the credit on that to Charlotte's mother, Paige Triggy. She's the one who really put those links together. We were interested in it for cancer, for anti-inflammatory, and potentially different neurological disorders because of the evidence that it was a neuroprotectant. But February 2012, Paige Figgy got in touch with us. She heard that we were breeding the type of variety she was looking for for Charlotte. And that's really what changed our lives. You know, before that, it was such a difficult industry. You, you, were, you were dealing with changing regulation. It was difficult to keep up with. And lots of people think that everyone was making money hand over fist. Well, if you were doing it right, you really weren't. You were typically losing to stay in the industry. But after meeting Charlotte, after seeing what we could do with this little compound, cannabidiol, CBD, you couldn't pry us off of this industry you just couldn't it's the most rewarding thing oh man it's really moving hey you make the distinction essentially between oh darn hey hey as my uh cannabis radio brother vivian mcpeak would say we gotta pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws we'll be right back after this message hold on for more empire after you've grown to learn more about our sponsors 
Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. CannabisRadio.com keeps you in the know Monday through Friday on air and on demand with Cannabis Radio News. Presented with the definitive worldwide news source, the Associated Press. Stay informed with exclusive news on all things cannabis. Cannabis Radio News, live weeknights at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, during the Russ Belville Show. Or download the daily podcast exclusively on CannabisRadio.com, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. When breaking news happens in the cannabis industry, Cannabis Radio News delivers the details first. Time to harvest more crop-tastic content on Hempire, only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back with Joel Stanley to discuss some of the development of the high CBD strain Charlotte's Web. So you mentioned the distinction between sort of hemp and marijuana and how the Figgy family really spearheaded this work for epilepsy. Can you draw some more distinctions between just hemp and cannabis as we sort of think of it? Yeah, you know, the way that I put it for most folks, we speak to a lot of regulators, legislators that just don't understand the topic. And it's fairly simple. Cannabis and hemp come from the same variety of plant, the same species of plant. And just like dogs, you can have what I have, a a Bernese Mountain Dog, a huge 130-pound dog, or you can have a teacup poodle. The same species of animal, but very different. And the real differentiator between hemp and cannabis is the level of THC. And THC is what we all know is the compound that can get us high. And in order for cannabis to qualify as hemp, it has to grow with less than three-tenths of 1%, 0.3% THC. That's really the only difference there. But hemp can be grown to create so many things, be it seed, for fiber use, for fuels, but also for these minor cannabinoids that are non-psychoactive, like CBD. It's funny because we look back on the 1940s when uh, the Hemp for Victory movement was out there, and we were having folks grow these really long stem plants. It doesn't sound like that's really what you guys were looking for for these high CBD strains, though. No, you know... You selectively breed these plants, just like many other plants, for whatever purpose you're going for. So so if that's building materials, say insulation, you're going for a specific type of fiber. If you want it for fiber for shoes or for clothing or for rope, you're going for a specific type of fiber. And we can breed these plants to be strong in those types of fiber. We were breeding specifically for these minor cannabinoids like CBD, and we still are to this day. We continue that breeding project. Oh, it's just a riot. So you end up with relatively large buds and relatively short plants, but they just don't have the THC like we see in some of these other strains. That's exactly right. They're typically high in 
resin production, which is where you find the bulk of the cannabinoids. So they'll look very similar to a marijuana plant, maybe even smell very similar. But they're very different in that you could smoke these types of plants all day long and you're not going to get high. It's a real stellar way to think about it, particularly given the number of children who could benefit. Can you tell me a little bit about the story of the Figgy family and how you guys all got connected? Sure. So Paige Figgy, Charlotte's mom, back in 2012, was at a very desperate moment. Several months before she met us, as Charlotte was having as many as 300, 400 violent seizures every week, she had been through every pharmaceutical option. And to put that into perspective, there's no FDA-approved drug for Charlotte's disease, Dravet syndrome, at her age. There's not one. So everything was experimental, but they had been through all of the pharmaceutical possibilities, and Charlotte was only getting worse. And they were basically sent home and told, make preparations, because we don't know how long Charlotte's going to last. This family, Pat and Paige Figgy, had signed do not resuscitate orders. They were, they were preparing to say goodbye to Charlotte. And here's this amazing mom sitting up late at night with a child seizing in her arms, violent grandma seizures, and she's going through Google and PubMed, finding what else might be out there that the medical community has missed. And she found research going back to the 1850s that certain types of cannabis had been used in Great Britain to help a child with seizure disorders. She found Professor Mishulam's research with cannabidiol and seizure disorders. And so this, you know, very conservative family that, that would never think to look at cannabis, uh, you would, you know, they're not an activist family at all. They're not a hippie family, but they were willing to try anything, anything at this point. And she did her research, went through, you know, several different dispensaries. And back then you have to understand there were very few people even in the industry that could pronounce the word cannabidiol or even knew what it was. And so she's going person to person throughout the industry trying to find this because she wanted to try it first. You know, she didn't want to dive into a psychoactive, you know, the devil THC has been taught to all of us. And very few people even, even knew what she was talking about. And through a friend of a friend, she, she got in contact with us. And it's really divine. I, you know, whatever people believe, the universe really brought her to us, brought us to her in order for this to happen. Because we were not looking for this type of thing. We only had eight plants at the time that would even qualify for what she was looking for. And she brought it to us. She had two doctor's notes. Her neurologist had signed off, said, hey, it's worth a shot. You know, nothing we've given you is working. And we gave it a shot, and there Charlotte went, 300, 400 seizures a week to none her first week. It's just so startling to have such a dramatic impact so rapidly. And it's heartbreaking to think of a poor child having literally a seizure every couple of minutes and then to have it disappear. I mean, you almost have had tears in your eyes. That was truly mind-blowing, to be honest. I didn't even know how to take it, and I have to be real honest. I think Paige Figgy knew what was happening. I think she knew that she hadn't changed anything else, but I was very skeptical. You know, I couldn't say, hey, this is the thing that's working, but we might as well keep doing it. You know, and then through a small grapevine of epilepsy families, another child would try it, and it would work similarly, if not better. 
And after you see 10, 15 of these go through, you start to realize that it's real. And, and that was mind blowing for us. And, and that whole story, I mean, now there are, now we're serving, you know, 6,000 families, more than 14,000 people on the whole. And we're still just shocked by it. I mean, this is just a few years ago that this really started. We're still in awe that this plant has this capability for these folks. It's a stellar phenomenon. I, I got to admit now, you're up to 6,000 families, you say? That's right. Regularly using Charlotte's Web. And I have to point out, I mean, the Charlotte's Web line of, line of products, named in honor of Charlotte, appropriately, I believe, they're great products. But there are so many excellent cannabis varieties and ratios of different cannabinoids and terpenes that are going to be helpful. So it doesn't stop there. That's why we're still breeding to find out what we can do with this amazing plant, and so are others. And without revealing any trade secrets, can you kind of give us a feel of what that entails? How, how does the breeding really work? We use traditional Mendelian breeding, which is the same way most of our tomatoes come about. It's genetic modification in the way that nature would do it, in a way that our bodies can accept it. You know, this is not like we're you know, pulling a gene from some other species and putting it into the cannabis plant like is done with our typical GMO corn. This is traditional breeding. It's very simple. You cross varieties, you look for the specific traits that you want, you isolate those, and then you breed them back either to the mother or to other plants with the same traits until you get the desired effect. It's good old cross-pollination like the tall peas and the yellow peas, right? That's exactly right. You just select which pollen you want to breed with which female plants based on the traits that those plants are showing. It's a riot that it's something this simple that in many ways we've known it for quite some time, but it took this novel combination of need and ability to make it all happen. I'm, I'm really blown away. And I'm sure you guys must have put a ton of effort in to make this happen. It's not the kind of thing that just you know, happens overnight. This must have taken generation after generation. This took us from the time we began in late 2008 until February 2012, right when we met Paige Figgy. And, you know, at that time, we had just a few varieties of CBD genetics that were even close to non-psychoactive. Now, fast forward four years later, we have somewhere between 40 and 50 that we're currently working with. And then, of course, you know, I, I, we can't throw THC under the bus. We're also working with different THC genetics because people need that. It's not just CBD. Sometimes CBD and hemp-level THC works well for people, and they're very lucky when that happens because they have better access. But many disease states, many people respond better with higher levels of THC or other cannabinoids. Well, this is just a, a wonderful story, and I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So Empire is going to be our new segment in the show, and we're going to have to get back to you and your brothers and, and make this a, a real tradition. So, hey, we've been talking with Joel Stanley, the chief executive officer of CW Hemp and a board member of the Realm of Caring Foundation. Joel, thanks so much for being here and looking forward to speaking to you again. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mitch. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. 
the next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. I'm Radical Russ from the Russ Belleville Show. Keith Strop, the founder of Normal, is here. The single most important victory will be California. We've got Steve D'Angelo. Well, the state of cannabis affairs in California is in flux. The guru of ganja, Ed Rosenthal. It's uh, better for people to be using concentrates. Weekdays live at 6 Eastern, 3 Pacific, exclusively on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. It's time for another chapter in self-compassion in the art of activism. It's the portion of our show where we learn to take good care of ourselves and each other. I want to talk a minute about holding our thoughts a little bit lightly. In some of my worst moments, everyone around me seems blissfully successful without any effort or persistence, while I wallow in freakish misery. They're all thin and wealthy and delightfully happy. They get to sleep late. They tread softly. They relish their leisure. In some of my best moments, I'm one of those guys, or so it seems. It seems like I'm living bliss and taking it easy, but the key word is seems. Other people seem as if they've got it made, but they only seem that way. I rarely know all the slings and arrows they might have suffered. I'm not sure how their own minds might torment them. And lots of people's lives look delightful from the outside. But as I think about it, I realize that my own mind is no pipeline to the truth either. Thoughts come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Some are worth pursuing. Most are not. Many days, I've thought weird and unbelievable things before breakfast has even started. Fortunately, I don't believe everything I think. And I only act on a small percentage of those random thoughts that enter my noggin. I've met those people who claim that they can control the content of their minds. You know, the ones who brag that they don't think of pink elephants, uh, even at the mention of those rosy creatures. But I'm really not one of them. And as I think about it, I wouldn't want to be. Yeah, my mind jumps from one topic to the next, And perhaps you've got similar experiences. The price of having a mind that runs on its own seems kind of expensive. One thought leads to another and another, and it's all regardless of our control. A pleasant thought can cue a nasty one, and then our moods can sometimes get nasty too. We can get caught in anxiety-provoking rumination, and it could render anyone panicky. We might find ourselves sad for reasons we can't even remember. Our minds can run down dark and threatening corridors. But 
the reward for a mind that kind of works on its own is also splendid too. We think thoughts we'd likely never think if we were in complete control of some linear thought after thought after thought in perfect rational succession. Let's be honest, if we were all in charge of the contents of our own heads, we'd probably bore ourselves to tears. One topic would lead to its obvious, predictable conclusion time after time after time. It's those crazy thoughts that keep us hopping, but they're also the ones that can likely get us out of trouble, get us out of free-falling predicaments. Once in a while, my crazy thoughts solve a key problem, and they could help me avoid income tax penalties or a night slept on the couch. And every so often, one of our minds happens upon a big idea, one that inspires actions worthy of prizes. Uh, Arthur Fry didn't invent the post-it note by thinking linearly. Our minds can really be fantastic. Even if they are a little nutty, I wouldn't want it any other way. But with our minds in mind, we can only take these thoughts so seriously. In a sense, we can do some thinking about our own thinking. No need to dwell on a disturbing thought. Another one's going to pop in your mind anyway soon. And if we get a pleasant idea, by all means, let's see other good ones come after it. Although most of us don't seem to control every flash of thought, every memory, we do retain veto power when it comes to action and belief. As our eyes stare over that 100th floor balcony, many of us have minds that would momentarily think of leaping. But that doesn't mean we have to take the dive. We can decide what to believe and what to let go. If we think a thought repeatedly, sometimes we mistake it for the truth. It's like, I've thought this before, maybe it is true. And if we mistake a thought for truth too many times, it actually becomes a belief. But then we can end up believing things that just aren't true because we thought them so many times. So no matter how long or how often we've thought a thought, we can still realize it's a little more than just whimsy. We just have to test it out. Is this idea true or not? How would I know? And if it isn't, how can I best deal with it? If it is, maybe I shouldn't make a giant deal out of it anyway. So run a little experiment on one of your own beliefs and find out if it's helpful or if it's true. And hey, let me know how it turns out at 420research at gmail.com. That's 420research at gmail.com. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Burning Issues on CannabisRadio.com. My continued gratitude to all the Cannabis Radio production wizards and today's guest, clinical neuropsychologist, Professor Raina Hurt. Please join us again and join us again soon. You can find us on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spreaker, and hey, anywhere good podcasts appear. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.